Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Hi, I'm Janet Freeman Daly. I'm a writer, research advocate, and a staffer for the IASLC Supportive Training for Advocates in Research and Science Program, also known as STARS. I've been a lung cancer patient for nine years. Hi, I'm Jill Feldman. I've been a lung cancer advocate for almost 20 years. I am a 2019 ISLAC STARS mentor, and I've been a lung cancer patient for 11 years. Janet and I are both here thanks to advancements in lung cancer research. This episode of the Lung Cancer Considered podcast is a collaborative effort across lung cancer advocacy organizations and the ISLC STARS program. We'll be discussing what patients and research advocates need to know about lung cancer research in the era of COVID-19. Jill and I are joined by advocates Dr. Amy Moore, Dr. Upal Basuroy, and Dr. Jan Boronsky, and lung cancer researchers Dr. Alice Berger, Dr. Christine Lovely, and Dr. Brendan Stiles. Dr. Berger is the Assistant Professor of Human Biology at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Dr. Lovely is the Associate Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology, and Ingram Associate Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Stiles is the Associate Professor of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Will Cornell Medical College, Cornell University, and the Associate Attending Cardiothoracic Surgeon at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Brennan was a presenter for the 2019 ISLC STARS program. And Dr. Moore is the Director of Science and Research at the GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer. Amy was also a presenter for the 2019 ISLAC STARS program. Dr. Basu Roy is Vice President of Research at Longevity Foundation. Upal was also a mentor for the 2019 ISLAC STARS program. Dr. Bronski is the Vice President of Scientific and Patient Programs for the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. So Amy, we hear about the different types of research all the time. Can you please explain what is basic science research, what is translational research, and what is clinical research? Thank you for the question. Yes, I'm happy to explain that. Being trained as a basic scientist, I think it's so important for people to understand the continuum. We often talk about being from bench to bedside, meaning we take those basic observations we make in the laboratory and ultimately translate them for human benefit, for clinical benefit. And so what does that look like? And I like to use the ALK story to kind of illustrate some of the key points of how that continuum looks for research. So going back to the early 90s, investigators had discovered the ALK mutation, but it wasn't until 2007 that investigators in Japan described some novel ALK rearrangements in non-small cell lung cancer. So that was interesting from a basic science perspective, but to get it to where it could benefit patients, we then had to take it into more translational research. And that's often where we will utilize what we call preclinical models. We have to test 
these basic discoveries in cell lines or animal models. And so, for example, the scientists could take those mutations, engineer them into cells or put them into mice and, and see what their function was, screen potential drugs that could target those mutations. They could look to test inhibitors, for example, and then ultimately that moved into clinical trials. So we ultimately want to test those observations and discoveries in patients through phased clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three. And in the case of ALK, this moved very quickly from the initial observation in non-small cell lung cancer in 2007 to getting drugs in patients by 2010. So in three years, we went all the way from basic research to clinical research, getting it into patients. And that's just one example of how that plays out. But UPAL is going to go into more detail on how that works in terms of drug development specifically. So Upal, can you explain the process of taking a lung cancer drug from the bench to the patient and how long that typically takes? Thanks for the question, Janet, and thanks, Amy, for setting it up so well for me. So the process of identifying a drug and bringing it to a patient is called the drug development life cycle. And as Amy talked about, the time that it took for the ALK drugs to come to the market in general, it takes about eight to 10 years to bring a new drug to the patient. And approximately half of that time is spent in the discovery stage of the drug that Amy described, the basic science, the translational science. And the other half is spent during the clinical trial phases of the drug development life cycle. Now, why do you think it takes this long? It's because a researcher has to sift through a lot of different chemical compounds before a compound can become a drug. It's quite normal for researchers to test between 5,000 to 10,000 different chemical compounds in cancer cell lines and shortlist a few that they'll test in animal models of lung cancer. And compounds that look promising in these animal studies will then enter a phase one clinical trial. Now, if you're really lucky, then five of those initial 5,000 compounds that you tested may make it to a phase one clinical trial. And if you're really, really, really lucky, then one of those five compounds will actually be successful in a phase three clinical trial and then reach a patient. So this takes a lot of time. And the same is true for technologies. For example, bronchoscopy with a bronchoscope, which is a thin tube-like instrument that you know your doctor can insert through your nose or your mouth and take a look at your lungs. The first bronchoscope was actually invented in, 18, in the 1890s, but the bronchoscope that you know of today, the flexible bronchoscope that can go in through your nose, your mouth, did not happen until 1968. So this just says that innovation in science and in research takes time. And the biggest reason for this is to make sure that what reaches a patient is ultimately safe and helps with either diagnosing lung cancer, such as a bronchoscope, or treating the disease, such as the ALK drugs that Amy was talking about. I know everyone on this podcast, we would love, love, love to fast track innovation, but not at the cost of patient safety. Wow, thank you for explaining that, Upal. That's fascinating. And now that we know a little bit more about the science, we'd like to hear what a typical research day looked like for all of you before 
COVID-19 pandemic. Alice, can you tell us what your typical day looked like as a basic researcher? Sure. Hi, Jill. I'd love to. Well, academic research is so collaborative. So much of my day is spent in group meetings with other scientists, either in my lab or in other labs or in one-on-one meetings with my mentees. I have seven people in the lab where we look at their new data they've generated, help them interpret their data and figure out the next critical experiments we need to do to make new insights. We would attend seminars to learn about cutting-edge research from other groups so that we can stay on top of this knowledge. And I also spend a good amount of time writing, reading, and occasionally travel to conferences to present our work and learn about international and national science. For my trainees, they attend some of these seminars and they spend much of the rest of their time at the bench doing experiments with human lung cancer cells and animal models of lung cancer And our lab also does computational work, so some of my trainees spend the majority of their time on data science. Thanks, Alice. Christine, you're a clinician and a translational researcher. What did your typical day look like before COVID-19? Janet and Jill, thank you so much for having me during this podcast. And for everyone who's listening, I just want you all to know how grateful we are for your time. I hope this is informative and hope you're all doing well and staying healthy and safe. So I'm a physician scientist and I like to say I have the best job in the world because I get to both practice clinical medicine and take care of lung cancer patients and then also do research in lung cancer. And so I um, am somebody who splits my time between basic research in the laboratory and then taking care of patients in the clinic and the hospital. So a lot of things that you just heard from Alice apply to my day as well. I have trainees in my lab. I spend a lot of time in collaborative meetings, trying to advance projects. One maybe difference is I spend um, a significant amount of time in in meetings that are clinical as well in order to make best practices for patients, talk about clinical trials, and really bridge that critical gap between experimental research in the laboratory and seeing patients in the clinic. I see patients in the clinic one day a week, um, and then I also take care of patients in the hospital and we rotate. And so that's a big responsibility that's part of my day-to-day basis. And then in my laboratory, meetings, writing grants, meeting with my mentees, and really trying to train and teach the next generation of lung cancer researchers. That's a very, very important part of my job as a translational cancer researcher and clinician, is making sure that the students and the postdoctoral fellows and the undergraduate students in my lab who are interested in research really get excited about lung cancer. They understand the critical importance of this disease. They get excited about it, and they understand both the scientific aspects of the disease and really get to touch patients' lives as well, even though they're not physicians. And I think that's a really important part of being a translational researcher is you provide that bridge between the patients and people in the laboratory who really want to help the patients get better therapies, develop innovative approaches to treating lung cancer. Thank you, Christine, for your passion and dedication. Brendan, you're a surgeon who also does clinical research. What did your typical day look like before COVID-19? Well, thanks, Jill, and thanks, Janet, for for having me on with everybody. And I want to echo what Christine said and just say hi to everybody and thank everybody for joining. It's obviously a time where the lung cancer community needs to come together, and I think it's a good time to think about research, particularly what's going to happen with research now that, that COVID is here. 
my day was sort of similar to Christine's. I actually thought I had the best job in the world, but my day depends a little bit on the day of the week. And, and I get to do a little bit of everything that Upal and Amy touched on. I am a surgeon first and foremost. And so some days of the week, I, I'm lucky enough to be able to take lung cancers out of patients. But we have a really active translational research program where we take those tumors and sometimes the nearby normal lung straight to the lab and do experiments on it or break it down into the different tissue components or cellular types and look at those to study those really specimens directly from patients. And that we really consider translational research. Um, I also have a, a small group that does basic science. I certainly don't do it as well as Alice or as others, but uh, I try. And I, I think it's it's helpful for me to see the whole cycle of science and to see how really starting with one idea or one observation from a patient to then take it to the lab and try to think about it and hopefully bring it back to bigger translational studies. And that that process, there's so many parts to it. And as Upo was talking about, it's it's almost hard to fathom the process that goes into understanding one patient's tumor, to applying that to many patients, to figuring out what works for that tumor, to testing it out in the laboratory, to getting it all the way back to people. It really is an incredible journey. Along the way, I like to connect with people and to take care of the individual patients' tumors. And, and that was a big part of what I did before COVID, seeing lung cancer patients and sort of guiding them along this journey. I also try to teach both surgical residents and, and the folks in the lab uh, about translational research. And I think, as Christine said, really trying to focus on what we as a community can do to, to do team science, like uh, as Alice alluded to as well, to bring everybody together, to get people thinking about different ideas, cross-collaborating, and then try to do it all well with the highest attention to detail and quality. So my days are pretty different day to day, but there's something that I enjoy very much, and research sort of runs through everything. That's fascinating. Thank you, Brendan. In the era of COVID-19, academic medical centers and hospitals have asked researchers to work from home to minimize their risk, or asked some researchers to shift to more clinical work. So I'd like to ask all our researchers, Alice, Christine, and Brendan, how has the pandemic impacted your research? Brendan, you want to go first? Sure, I'll start. It's it's really remarkably grounded thanks to a halt here in New York City. Obviously, we're um, one of the epicenters of COVID, but our whole research infrastructure has pretty much slowed down. The laboratories have closed. Our ability, as I talked, described before, to take a clinical sample from the operating room to the lab is, is completely non-existent. And really, our ability to enroll on clinical trials um, slowed down significantly, although that's picking back up. And it's had an incredible effect, I think, on young investigators and on their ability to to work and to write grants. My great example is I have a, a pulmonary medicine fellow who's been spending time with me in the in the basic lab, but she's been pulled and basically I think was working in an ICU, a different ICU every time I saw her for the last month and a half and has had zero time to do research, really what she had set aside this time to do. So you know, on the micro scale, it's really affecting the individuals who do research. And, and my worry is that on the macro scale, that's going to slow down our ability to get drugs and advances to patients. Christine, you want to go next? Yeah. So I will follow that with, I was on a, another call last week and I heard somebody say, and I really love this expression. They said, lung cancer research may slow down during COVID, but it doesn't stop and we don't deprioritize it. And we do find ways to circumvent the obstacles that are in our in our course right now. And so I want everyone out there to know, not lose hope that there have been some necessary halts on research, like Brendan, my lab was shut down. We're just starting to open back up. And uh, trainees were encouraged to work from home to try to advance their studies computationally or through reading, which 
is an important part of our work as well. It's not the same as working directly on the, on the bench top and doing experimental science, but reading the existing literature and trying to get a very, very deep knowledge of the science and the medicine is also a key part to learning and, and advancing treatments for lung cancer. And so in the post-COVID era, for me personally, a lot of my time was spent, I was on hospital service, um, when it started to roll out in Nashville, we've been very fortunate here that um, we learned people like Brendan in New York City and other colleagues in Italy and China in Seattle, and we're able to very rapidly institute social distancing here. And so our case numbers have not been near as bad as, as the epicenter in New York. Nonetheless, um, it's still something that we face every day. And so in the post-COVID error. Yes, my laboratory is closed. Yes, people are still working. They're still working on um, grants. They're still finding ways around it. Where there's a will, there's a way. And I'm definitely a glass half full person and believe that we can continue to do impactful research, even with the, the COVID-19 obstacle in front of us. You never lose hope that we can find creative solutions and smart people find ways around things. It actually has been very interesting and a huge learning curve for me as well. And I've enjoyed learning about different parts of medicine that maybe I don't necessarily always engage in in my world as a medical oncologist. But I think they really helped me to be a better, better medical oncologist. They helped me to be a better researcher because I've learned a lot about the pathophysiology of lung disease outside of cancer. And I think that helps me have a better understanding of lung cancer as well and train my mind to think about lung cancer in different ways because we learn from all different disease states in medicine. And, and so I'm going to see it, the silver linings in this situation and try to take every advantage of every opportunity to learn and encourage my trainees to do the same. We are starting to open back up. And so it, we're going to continue to go um, try to do our best in advancing studies. Thank you, Christine. Alice? Yeah, I think here in Seattle, you know, it was very scary initially because we had one of the first cases of COVID-19, but we were very fortunate in that we had some of the first surveillance and testing of any city in the nation. And because of that, um, we were able to implement social distancing and different precautions at the hutch pretty early on. And so we ended up having to partially shut down to one person per lab. But after a couple of weeks, we were able to actually phase in more and more people. So my lab is operating at about half capacity right now in the lab. And then the rest of the lab members are working from home. So we've been able to remain somewhat operational, fortunately. I think had the pandemic been worse here, we had a number of different contingency plans, but thankfully we didn't have to, to use those. And so I think we've done a reasonably good job of keeping those you know, grants going in and our lab works a lot with big data. So that was another kind of um, silver lining for our research group in particular is that we had already generated some large data sets that we were just starting to really dig into. One of them is the Never Smoking Lung Cancer Project that Janet and Jill are very familiar with. And so the postdoc working on that project has her hands full, whether she's in the lab or at home. And so we are just grateful to have things to still work on. And we know that our mission is to cure cancer. That has not stopped. That has not changed. And I've just tried to keep focused on that and um, keep making progress. Thank Thank you. May I just add something? Hearing um, Alice and Christine talk, I, I love the optimism. I just wanted to echo that. I really do think, you know, imagine all these young researchers in different places and worried about what they're going to 
do day to day, but but I've been just amazed by stories that I've heard and by their optimism. And I, I too like to look at the silver line and, and I do think it's given young researchers a chance to really step back, like Christine alluded to, and look at their data and to read the literature deeply. I've been amazed at some of the observations that my team has shared to me with LabMe and how they've gone back and looked at every bit of data that we've generated and really seen some things that maybe we missed the first time. There's so much pressure on research now and it's such a fast, fast, get it done, move to the next thing that I think this has been a good experiment, just like a lot of people's lives were able to slow down as they stepped away from things. I think research was able to sort of slow down and try to figure out and focus on what's important. So so I too think a lot of good things will come out of this. Can I add one more comment to that as well? I think just to the, the message of hope, I've been really impressed by um, the rallying that I see people do both on the clinical side and on the research side. We are used to working as teams all the time. That is how medicine and science that is our day-to-day life pre and post COVID. And that's not going to change. I think being in a crisis situation like the pandemic has solidified some of those teams in ways that just blow my mind. And to see people engage and help each other and really be creative in in terms of strategies for helping each other has has been so um, inspiring, both in the clinic and in in the research laboratories. And so I have tremendous hope that this will a little bump in the road, um, but we will get beyond it. Wow. Thank you, guys. You all have had challenges, but as a patient, I have to tell you, it's really reassuring to hear you talk about how you adapted so well to COVID-19. So now that we've heard from some of the researchers, Jan, as a research funder, What are some of the steps you are taking to support researchers during these times? Yeah, thank you for the question, Jill. And and also just to echo, I think, the sort of optimism. You know, we as research funders certainly appreciate the difficulty of the biomedical research enterprise. We heard from Upal just how big of an undertaking it is to bring therapies through the discovery process all the way to the clinic and to the bedside. In COVID, during COVID-19, obviously there are additional challenges, but I think much like Brendan and the group echoed the sort of commented on the optimism, we very much recognize that this entire process works and it works well in lung cancer, perhaps now more than ever, it's critical. We keep the momentum going. And so we're very much committed as funders to keep that momentum going and to do everything we can to support researchers through this time. It's a time of learning for us as well. And so we're adapting, trying to adapt uh, with our community as much as we can. And I think um, we can sum it up by saying ourselves as research funding organizations, as well as some of the larger agencies like the federal agencies, the NIH, the DOD, we're basically doing things on two fronts. One is for our current grantees, so people who have current grants with us during this time and are having to shift and close down labs and so forth. Uh, We're trying to build in that additional flexibility that they need during this time. So many of them, you know, might not be able to get in the lab and work on those wet lab experiments during this time, but they might be doing more data analysis like we've heard. They might be writing manuscripts. So that means reallocations of their budgets. That means a little bit of additional time to submit progress or financial reports. So if that reagent that was on the shelf in the lab at this time is expiring and you get back in the lab and need to buy another one, uh, that means additional changes to the budget. So a lot of administrative flexibility, a lot of additional time to get work done and just sort of trying to adapt and support our community and also bringing scientists and investigators together to share some of these stories and talk about how they're they're dealing with some of these challenges. And I think the other 
part that I wanted to highlight is current applicants or upcoming applicants that had deadlines pending right now. So I know the NIH, TOD, and, and us as grant-making organizations have also shifted some deadlines, certainly recognizing that especially some of the more clinically focused um, scientists, you know, were pulled away, pulled into other duties at this time. So we wanted to make sure we're, we're giving enough flexibility and people to secure funding this year to continue uh, to continue their projects later the, in the fall. I think, again, I just wanted to highlight that we're absolutely committed to supporting research. We need to keep the momentum going, and we're, we're trying our, our best to do that as part of a, a team effort. Um, I Maybe I'll end by saying in the past two, two to three weeks, I think we've seen two new approvals in lung cancer, one breakthrough therapy designation. I think I saw another one come through today. You know, These are things that used to happen years or even decades apart. Now they're regularly happening months apart. And so keeping that momentum going is the theme for us. Yeah, and that's a really great point. Thank you for bringing that up about the FDA approval. So during this, the COVID-19 quarantine period, we have seen several new indications for lung cancer. One you're referencing most recently is a combination immunotherapy strategy for patients with advanced or stage four disease containing nivolumab and ipilimumab, two different types of immunotherapy. We also last week saw approval for drugs that target MET and drugs that target RET, two targets that we understand well in lung cancer and that are part of our armamentarium. So I think um, another, that's another silver lining of this period. Drug development continues. The FDA is working rapidly to get drugs to patients. I want to also comment and say, because probably a lot of people in the audience are thinking it or have heard about clinical trials being on hold. And that's something we haven't discussed too much yet. And I think it's it warrants a moment of discussion. So in the midst of the pandemic, I will tell you at my university, and I understand it, many others as well, there was a temporary pause in clinical trials. And part of that was because trying to protect patients and make sure that we were keeping people at home if necessary I fully expect clinical trials to come back online. They already are. I would think about it a little bump in the road, um, but trials will continue to push forward. And I think we see tremendous optimism from the FDA getting these approvals out. FDA wants trials. We want trials. Patients want trials. This is, this is why we do the research that we do so that we can bring innovative therapies to patients. Yes, thank you for that. Again, that's another reassuring point that you're making, Christine, with the clinical trials. And Jan, as well, with the funding, it is something that we as patients do worry about. And as an advocate for 20 years, I saw the progress in lung cancer research and I am glad to hear that it won't be set back so far with everyone pushing forward. So let me ask you all another question then. You've you've all said that lung cancer research is still a priority and you've talked about some silver linings. What are some other silver linings for lung cancer coming out of this pandemic? I think, I don't know how many people are familiar with the TerraVolt study, but the collaboration of that or other studies that you've been doing or just anything that has to do with research or seeing patients. Well, I can comment from a basic science perspective, um, if you'd like. And one of the really interesting things and confusing things about COVID-19 is the massive immune responses that some individuals mount in the lungs to this virus and others don't. 
And we know that the immune response in lung cancer is such an important part of the development of lung cancer and also, of course, in the response to immunotherapies in lung cancer. And so I'm wondering if down the road, this virus is actually going to lead us to a better understanding of the immune microenvironment in the lung and some of the individual variation maybe from person to person. And so maybe um, all the increased attention to COVID-19 research will have a kind of secondary beneficial effect on lung cancer research. Yeah, it's Brendan. I think that that's a great point that Alice makes. And I do think people are going to really start thinking about individual and personalized immunity, which will have a lot of implications for cancer research as well. I think another positive, if you really think about it, is the clinical trials are going to change. And and I think it's not all great. I, I read somewhere that over 200 clinical trials have closed. And so certainly we're going to lose from that. But if you think about how people have mobilized and what they've done to keep clinical trials going, you know, telemedicines, remote visits, sending medicine to patients, um, sort of decreasing the frequency of follow-up. These are all the things that we've constantly heard have been issues for patients and issues for staying on trials and issues for enrollment. And so I'm optimistic that this is going to cause everybody to pause and say, you know, did we have to do clinical trials that way? Did we have to make so many barriers? Are there other ways that we can do it? Can we monitor patients remotely or with televisits? Do they have to get imaged so frequently? So I think that the clinical trials in oncology are going to get a little bit easier after we get through all this. This is Christine. I really echo what Brendan says. Telemedicine actually has been um, a fun part of, of the pandemic. It's been nice to see and connect with patients in their homes um, and be able to offer different ways to provide care. And I think the pandemic hastens something, telemedicine, that would have otherwise taken years to roll out. And so I see that as, as a silver lining as well. Jill, you mentioned Terravolt. That is an ISLC-sponsored study that has a really inspiring story behind it. So our colleague Marina Garasino um, from Milan, Italy, basically sent an email out to maybe 100 lung cancer doctors and said, hey, I'm in the heart of this crisis here in Milan, Italy. We really should get a registry together. And it was her passion for bringing together the lung cancer community and the very swift response of the lung cancer community that said, yeah, we are all in, literally across the world. And that is only one example of many, 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 many that are going on with, with lung cancer and very importantly with other cancer patients. NCI has a big study that includes lung cancer patients that is a federal level um, study. It's, I think it's called CCC19. Uh, there's international registries for other cancer types. There's non-cancer registries. And, and we learn from non-cancer registries as well. I also really want to echo what Alice said, that we learn about the pathophysiology of lung disease in general by thinking about COVID-19. People across the board right now, you know, as a lung cancer doctor, we think about lungs all the time. That is our bread and butter, yet we still have a lot to learn. Now, every doctor I know is thinking about lungs because they're all interested in COVID-19. And where does COVID-19 manifest? It manifests in the lungs. So everybody is a lung doctor now, everybody is a virologist now, and I think that that will really truly help us in, in multiple ways. Alice mentioned understanding the inflammatory effects that happen in the lung, different um, immune microenvironments across different patients. I mean, I was fortunate to take care of a patient who provided samples for us to study in the lab. Like these are tools that will help lung cancer, but then also help other patients who have COVID that are not lung cancer patients. So there's going to be this beautiful synergy back and forth between physicians across different specialties, between patients that have different underlying diseases. And I think ultimately we'll wind up in a better place. 
Alice, do you see any changes with big data or data analysis coming out of this? Well, I think, you know, the biggest thing for our group really has just been this virtual, these virtual meetings. And I think the biggest effect probably on our future research is going to be the conference and scientific meeting environment. I expect a lot more virtual meetings, which have been a huge success and really allow us to interact with different investigators in other countries now without having to pay for expensive airfare and time-consuming airfare. And so I think that's going to be the biggest impact for my group. Well, and the, the upside of that also is that research advocates and patients who want to become research advocates now have access to these online meetings and can start participating more in the research process that way. That has been wonderful. That has been great. Can I ask you a question? Uh, Christine and Brendan, you both talked about telemed visits, about being able to connect with your patients through video while they're at their homes. Is that something that, you, when you say this is wonderful and positive, is that something that is wonderful and positive for every patient though? Or how do you decide that? Uh, this is Christine, I'll, I'll jump in and say first, there are select patients. So for patients who are getting active therapy, they have to be on site to come and get their chemo or their immunotherapy. And the utmost precautions are being taken for safety across the board to make sure that patients that are getting therapies that alter their immune um, state will, will be safe during this time. So there are lots of benefits to telemedicine. We've talked about some of them. I think for some of the visits where it's just a toxicity check or we just need to say hi and make sure you're doing okay, Telemedicine can work for that. I will tell you, though I have enjoyed doing telemedicine, nothing replaces and nothing will ever replace seeing somebody in person. Nothing will ever replace hugging your patient and their wife or their daughter or their son or whoever they brought with them. Telemedicine helps us and it's a tool that we will use, but it will not replace in-person visits in my opinion, nor should it. Because the human interaction of what we do, I would argue, is just as or more important than the medicines we give people. That connection that we make with our patients and their families, I think, is just as important as any prescription I will ever, ever write. Thank you. I'll just echo what Christine said. And I'm a bit of a touch or two, and surgeons kind of have to touch their patients, obviously, and look at incisions and things. But I, I've been pretty impressed with telemedicine, and we've done it by necessity. In the first week in March, I think we did 4% telemedicine visits. In the first week in April, we did 75% telemedicine visits. And it's it's not for everybody, and I know that there's worries that access to care, language barriers, maybe sort of disparities make it amplified. But But in many ways, I think it will reduce disparities. And if you think about patients and patients looking for remote clinical trials or wanting to talk to somebody about a clinical trial, that's a tremendous opportunity to not have to drive five hours or get on a plane to go somewhere, but to be able to talk to somebody and feel it out and, and understand if a patient is potentially eligible for a trial and, and what it's all about in a telemedicine visit. I, I think that is potentially game-changing. I agree, though, with Christina. I, I love seeing patients and talking to patients and reassuring them and you learn sort of through telemedicine some of those little cues and little things in the background that you do to make people comfortable because it can be hard. But I, I think it's going to be a big part of both clinical research and, and clinical medicine in the future. Yeah, I yeah, I think I think that the in person is really that personal 
that personal touch for a patient is really important. And Janet, you had mentioned patient advocates as well with being able to attend the conferences now, which is wonderful. But again, there's nothing like meeting and connecting with other advocates in person as well. And meeting the researchers in person. (laughs) Yes, that's like our Hollywood, right? (laughs) (laughs) Another aspect that I see as a silver lining in this is that the worldwide community is collaborating. They are being able to talk over the internet, they are being able to use Zoom, and there's a lot of new collaborations that are arising because of this. Upal, do you want to talk a bit about that? Absolutely, Janet. I think, uh, as, as, as Christine mentioned, I think lung cancer is a team sport and we have to collaborate together. And I think COVID-19 has really brought out that, that aspect of collaboration. And uh, since uh, the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, the patient advocacy groups have all come together to essentially mobilize, come together with a unified message for the lung cancer community. And uh, Dr. Amy Moore, Janet, Anna have been working to uh, write updates, scientific updates for the lung cancer patient community because we feel that as patient research advocates, we have the responsibility of making sure that we provide accurate and up-to-date information to our patient community. And I think this collaboration is testimony to the fact that we can come together and provide a unified message for the lung cancer community and to the lung cancer community. Amy, do you have some thoughts? Yes. You know, I mean, I think my perspective is unique in that I'm trained as a virologist who then became a cancer researcher who then became a lung cancer research advocate. And in the early days of this unfolding pandemic, I kind of realized what was happening and the implications for our community. And it, I described it as a perfect storm that I never wanted to be in the middle of because I, as we have seen, lung cancer patients infected with COVID are uniquely vulnerable and potentially have worse outcomes. And so it's imperative that our community come together on all fronts to collaborate, to partner, to educate, empower, and protect those that we serve. And so for me, that is a silver lining because I've seen that mobilization in ways that maybe we weren't doing before. And I hate that it's taken a crisis like this to make that happen, but I feel that those pieces are not going to go away once this crisis is over. If anything, I feel it's brought us all closer together. And, you know, there's important lessons, but I'm very grateful for the community that we have. Thank you. Jan, do you have some thoughts? Well, I'm just really thankful, I think, for Amy and Upov and you for sort of leading the charge on this and and echoing what Amy said. If nothing else, this has really been something that's caused us to dig our heels in even more. And I think just an example of that is the fact that we're all together on this podcast here uh, collaborating for, I think, one of the first times ever. So I just really see us as being sort of more resilient in our dedication to continuing the you know, the, the biomedical research enterprise and getting the results that we know are achievable. So I, I just want to sort of echo that spirit, I think. Thank you. That means a lot to us as patients. And I agree. I think that seeing you guys collaborate and working together really in this time of uncertainty for all of us, it gives us a lot of comfort knowing 
that you are fighting with us and for us together as one. It really, really is important and meaningful. Well, we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you so much to advocates Amy, Jan, and Upal, and to the lung cancer researchers Alice, Brendan, and Christine for making the time to talk with us. Please know that we patients appreciate your dedication to lung cancer patients and to accelerating research. We are also grateful for your contributions to the ISLC STARS program to educate and train lung cancer research advocates. Be safe, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.